Well, last weekend I took off. Thanks for that. Not that you vote on it or anything. But I, I took off last weekend to go to Nashville to marry a youngster in our church, Richard Petty. How great is that? Richard got married last weekend in Nashville. I had the honor of presiding over that, that wedding. It was in a chapel, not at Vanderbilt campus, but just adjacent to the campus. In a beautiful, in a beautiful chapel. I want to show you a picture of it. I stood right here. And that was last Saturday night about 6 o'clock. You see the sun coming through the stained glass there. And that's the platform. And I learned the history of this place, built in the 1800s. But in 1959, MLK, Martin Luther King Jr., stood right there and delivered a sermon. How cool is that? I remember standing there and just having a moment of thinking of the history. And I, I thought, you know, what did he say? What was his sermon that day? And I talked to a young lady associated with the college who works with events coordination. She said, you know, I bet we have that on file. I said, I bet you do. I bet there's a transcript in the archives. And just a couple of days ago, she emailed it to me. How cool is that? So I'll have the opportunity uh, sometime probably later today with my family out of town. I'll be able to read that sermon that Martin Luther King Jr. preached there. Would you guess what was on Martin Luther King's tombstone? Anybody want to hazard a guess on that? Free at last. Free at last. It's common in our day to talk about or post about or even write down a a bucket list. Anybody have a bucket list? These are the things that you want to do in your life. I want to go to the Super Bowl. I want to see a Broadway show front and center. I want to experience the Olympics. I want to float down the Nile. I want to see the Northern Lights. I want to take a train to the Orient Express. I want to try to hit a major league fastball. I want to sip a mint julep on the veranda at the Kentucky Derby. I want to test my limits in a marathon or taste some wine in Napa and Sonoma. These are, I got a list and these are the things that I want to do. I want to do these things. That's a bucket list. But there's a tombstone likely in your future, and that's not so much what you want to do. It's what you want your life to be known for. For MLK, it was free at last, free at last. I did a little research this week on some tombstones of some people. Merv Griffith, anybody my age or older, you remember him? He was a famous talk show host, and on his tombstone, it said, I will not be back after this message. There's a dentist named Warren Brown. Warren Brown lies in the ground filling his last cavity. There's a a tombstone of someone unnamed in West Virginia. Molly's from West Virginia. But on this tombstone, it says that Paul lies here. Paul loved women. Maul caught Paul with two of them swimming. Here lies Paul. Well, what will your tombstone say? Today in Acts, we get to Acts chapter 20. This is your cue to turn there. And of course, you know it's Fondred Church. We're going to put it up on the screen if you don't want to turn there. But Acts chapter 20. And we're going to get to, I want to submit to you five things I believe the Apostle Paul wanted on his tombstone. Of course, we can look back retrospectively. I think I could say to you today, these are five things that could have been on his tombstone. We know he died a very violent death. History indicates that the Roman Empire got him, and it was a brutal death. He was martyred, and he was uh, drugged. It was a bad situation, likely with dogs eating his body. No dignity there. But I'm going to give you five things for you note-takers as we course through this sermon. But first, I just want to put up a passage that really has nothing to do with the sermon. And that's Acts chapter 20. We're going to get, we're going to, get to the other passages a little deeper, but 
I just want to read this. It's important in our day. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Insert the word sermon there. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. That nothing to do with the sermon today. I just want you to hear that. Um, and I want you all to be careful up there. And remember, I was out last week, so I've got at least two sermons pent up in me. But Paul went long, and some of you gripe about a long sermon. Part of, Paul started in the afternoon, went well past midnight. A guy falls out dead. Some of you complain about me going five minutes too long. I'm just thinking, hey, has anybody fallen out dead? No, so quit, quit complaining. Now let's get to the text today, Acts chapter he was raised up, by the way, for feeling bad. But the guy got raised up. I want you to know that. Acts chapter, chapter 20, we're going to read verses 17 through 38. You guys ready? I'm supposed to say yes. You guys ready? God's Word. Here we go. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serve, and this will help you to know that Asia then is not Asia now, okay? Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering for, for the last three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no man's, no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had laid, when, I'm sorry, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, verse 37, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and then they accompanied him to the ship. The first thing on the epitaph on the tombstone of Paul I think you would say this, my life is not my own. In, in verse 24, a passage that could be easily misunderstood, Paul says, my life is, is of no value. I, I don't count my life 
as precious to me. How do you translate that today? Paul's not saying that he's worthless. He's comparing what is earthy and temporal to what is eternal, the seen and the unseen, and, and God's economy and our own. And he's moving us away. Paul's saying, my life, it is not my own. I am a slave. I am a servant. I'm not the master. The master is the one who is really in charge, a slave or a servant. And he just needs to be faithful. A slave or a servant doesn't have to worry about success or failure. That's the master's language. A slave or a servant just needs to be faithful. And Paul is saying, my life, it is not my own. It's it's not precious to me. He's saying that my life is not about my comfort or convenience. It's not about my safety or security. How about us? How about you? Scientists at Cal Berkeley conducted an experiment a couple of decades ago with an amoeba. They put an amoeba in a perfect environment, perfect room temperature, perfect lights, perfect humidity, perfect food supply. The amoeba in this Cal Berkeley experiment had no pressure, no challenge, no stress. What do you think happened to the amoeba? It died. Comfort can be lethal. It's scientific. If you're too comfortable, it'll kill you. We live, I know there's a lot of lawyers in the room, God bless you. We live in an age of safety and risk assessment. And there are women and men among us who make a good living and do great work for our society. And part of what they do, many of them, is to do risk assessment and to see what is safe and to see what we should be afraid of. And Paul is saying, my life, it is not my own. I'm not building this earthly tent, this fleshly dwelling. I'm not about safety. I want to risk it. I want to live. A University of Hawaii philosophy professor wrote a book on risk. And he devoted a chapter to household dangers. And in his research, he said that some 460,000 injuries annually are related to kitchen knives. I buy that. He goes on to say that some 100,000 injuries annually are related to saws, power saws or manual saws. That seems right. He also says, this is hard to believe, that 4,000 people annually are hurt by pillows. That's troubling, isn't it? Like, what's, what's happening there? But I submit to you that probably the most dangerous thing in your house is that back-reclining, foot-resting, deep-cushioned chair called an easy chair. You know how they spell easy chair? Y'all know how you spell easy chair? E-Z, right? Because it's just too hard to put those other letters in there, Right? So think about yourself in your easy chair. The feet are up, your back is reclined, it's air-conditioned, and it feels good. And you've got maybe your favorite blankie or snuggle, snuggie or whatever. And you're sitting there with your comfort food and your remote control. And in that moment, you have shut out the world. In that moment, if God is whispering you to do something adventurous or dangerous with your life, are you ready to obey Are you poised for kingdom work? And I say to you this morning that probably the most dangerous thing about that EZ chair is not what you do in it, it's what you don't do because you're in it. 
It's the lives that you don't touch. The relationships that don't go deep. The needs that don't get met. The people that get ignored. The prayers that don't get prayed. The races that are never run. The battles that are never fought. We like it easy. And we like it safe. One day we'll move from an easy chair to a deathbed. And some of you know this. Maybe some of you are in a, a similar line of work, certainly in medicine. But as a pastor and an older, not old, but older pastor. I've sat with many, many a person. Old mostly and some young. And seen them pass from this life into the next one. It's, of course, the tenderest of settings. But on that deathbed, I've never heard anybody say anything like, man, I wish I worked harder on my fantasy football league. I wish I'd posted more on Facebook. I wish I'd joined with other people in internet message chat rooms way more than I did. But think. Think about your life, and if this day... Your trajectory is a life of regret. Because you'll never become what you're not now becoming. And are you poised for a life of regret? Unresolved relationships. Unopened letters. Unconfessed sin. Unused talent. What kind of regrets... Are you setting yourself up for? Henry Cloud, one of my favorite writers, he talks about this reality that he sees in so many lives as a, as a psychologist. He calls it the dull state of sameness. And he writes, you can peer into people's lives person after person, year after year, and see that nothing has changed. Nothing has changed in the way they relate to their spouse, or to their kids, or co-workers, or to God, or their church, or the world at large. They're just on a conveyor belt of familiarity. Same thing, over and over, just a sameness. A life lived in safety. No risk, no adventure. And here's Paul, not saying be foolhardy. I don't think Paul would suggest that you go off Niagara Falls in a barrel... But I think he would say that there's way more to life than how you're living. In my life, he says, I didn't count it precious to me. It was in the end of no value. I belong to him. My life, he would say, on the two, it's not my own. The second thing I believe that he would say is that I learned the value of trouble. In verses 19, if you have an open Bible, you can look down verses 19 and then scan ahead to verse 31. We read it a moment ago. But in verse 19, he says, I serve the Lord with humility, tears, and trials. Verse 31 again, tears. We want our leaders. We want our leaders to be Men and women, high and exalted and lifted up. We want them to have a cape on. And we want them to be about success and power and joy. And Paul is saying, hey, look at my life. It's about humility 
and tears and trials. Tim Keller put it this way. A humble and weak person will show a crucified Savior better to a listener than a polished, pulled-together expert. Why? Because that's how it happened for us. We weren't saved by pulling ourselves together, but by admitting that we were sinners and calling on the one who was pulled apart for us. Tears and trials. Humility. Tears and trials. It's how we're formed. It's how we're shaped. And no one, no one is beyond it. The third thing I think he would say is I told you the truth. In verses 20 and 27, if you again have an open Bible, we're rewarding you today, but you can look it down. You can look down there. And Paul is a herald. He, he testifies. He is a witness. He's fleshing out Acts 1.8, and he's witnessing to these things. And he says, I preached to you. I didn't shrink back, verse 20. Verse 27, I didn't shrink back. Mentions it twice. I didn't shrink back from what? From preaching to you the whole counsel of God. In verse 26, he says a statement. He says, I'm innocent of the blood. Now, this is a reference to Ezekiel chapter 33. When in the Old Testament, in those days of the fortified cities, they would have watchmen. And they would, the watchmen would look down over the city to protect the dwellers, the men, women, and children. Ezekiel 33, son of man, I've made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word and speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. I told you in like week four or five, when we got into Acts and were introduced to Saul, who became Paul, that there is probably, you could put him in, in the list, in the short list of most intelligent people in all the world. And Paul knew his Jewish tradition. He knew the scriptures. And here he's making, he's hearkening back to what the prophet was told. So, perhaps today, church, the end of July in 2017, we need to either be reminded or we need to be taught that it is not my job to make you feel awesome. Because you are not. Turn to the person next to you. Some of you are about to go to sleep and just point to them and say, you are not awesome. Now, some of you talk to yourself anyway. Just say, I am not awesome. Here it is. And here's what I want to say to you. There are many times you can leave and feel good that you enjoyed a message. Man, I'm all for that. Trust me. I'm all for that. But there are times when you need to leave here deeply disturbed and troubled and shaken up. When it says in Acts chapter 2 that they were cut to the heart, that meant that they saw that they were wrong, that they needed to repent and they needed to change. And I want to say to you that you and I, we are dead in our sin. This isn't a little fix-up job. This isn't a little, hey, let's make some slight improvements. This is we need to be made alive because we are dead in our sin and we are condemned and we need a Savior. And that is upon me and it is a huge part of my job to preach that. There is no one good, Ecclesiastes 3. I thought he was good. I thought she was good. I thought there is no one good. 
We all need a Savior. And our sin, your sin, separates you. And here's the great news. And let me just put it this way. You buttoned a shirt probably this morning. I did. And this is a real-life illustration because I started wrong. I started in the darkness, and I missed the first, I missed, messed the first button up. Now, what do you do when you mess the first button up on a shirt? You don't keep going, do you? Terrible self-image move, right? You don't feel good about yourself, but you turn on the light and you start over. And you get the first one right so that the other buttons can be made right. And we can't share good news without understanding the bad news. That sin is real and it's real in you. That sin separates and that you're under condemnation. But God has made a way and we can be made alive. And that is the whole counsel of God. And Paul says, I did not shrink back. My life is not my own. I learned through these troubles. I told you the truth. And fourth, fourth, I finished, I finished strong. Have you ever thought that we live in an age that we sort of expect, we expect quitters? We expect not to finish. We have month-to-month leases with apartments and escape clauses in contracts and prenuptial arrangements in marriage and free agency in sports. And we live among vow-forgetting, excuse-making, work-faking mentalities in our day of when it gets tough, I'm going to get out. And it's on the heart of God that you would start what you finish. Any parents in the house? We're all over the room, aren't we? How many times, right? I mean, even recently, I'm like, finish that. Finish that. Finish the grass. Finish those carrots. Finish that project. Finish talking to me. Finish that obligation because you started it. And every good parent, there's just something inherent and innate in us. We know teach our kids that because it'll be better for them if they finish what they started. Marcus Luttrell is a, is a Navy SEAL and just his story, The Lone Survivor, is a really powerful one. And in it, he talks about not quitting about being a Navy SEAL and about that really hard uh, training period when most are vetted out, when most do quit, when only a few make it through. And there's a particularly hellacious, excruciating 48-hour period. He writes about this and he says, the way I make it, made it through that 48-hour period was I would just think not about the 48-hour period and how long it was going to be. I would think about just the next 10 seconds. And then the next 10 seconds. And then the next 10 seconds. What makes you want to quit? I've stood here. And I've told you somewhat recently, just wearing my emotions on my sleeve and being transparent with you, that I have at times, in seasons not too long ago, through difficulty, I've wanted to quit. When a pastor who's a dear friend across town and my wife told me a couple years ago, hey, Robert, don't quit. I remember thinking, why did he say that? Why did she say that? They know me really well. And they probably ascertained the, my level of discouragement even more 
than I was. And I'm with you. I live in the same world. I struggle with many of the same things and have the experiences that all of you have. Things that are common to all. You and I, we want to quit when we experience pain. When it hurts. When there's fatigue. When there's a lack of fruit. When things aren't going like we want it to go. I was thinking this week deeper about Paul and the story of Acts. And I was thinking that if you look at the fruit, now Paul was brilliant and God raised up a leader. And oftentimes we stand up here and say God uses the fishermen and the tax collectors and the marginalized and the left out. And he does and he does more often than not. But there was this time here in the early church in the first 30 years, the early part of the 30 years, where God says, hey, I want a guy who's really smart. Like he's the smartest guy and I want to use him. Because he's going to reason and persuade. Now listen, when Paul taught the truth, not everybody was converted. You know that, of course. Some were converted. But he made the message clear. Peter preached and 3,000 people were saved. Paul would preach and a couple of guys maybe wanted to go have coffee. I want to say it to you again because God is saying it to me. When your life is not your own, you live by God's ways. And He is in charge of failure and success in your life, not you. We are to embrace faithfulness. Listen to me, church. This is so brilliant. Like, you've never heard a preacher preach this good. You ready? When God tells you to do something, you ready? When God tells you to do something, do it. Do it. And what some of you, what He's prompting some of you to do is different than the person that you're sitting next to. It's different than me. But you be faithful in what God is calling you to do. Paul said, I finish strong. It's hard for a Navy SEAL to finish strong. Trust me, I know I was a Navy SEAL. A lot of you know that. I don't want to brag. But anyway, um, it's hard to finish if you're a Navy SEAL. Don't Google or ask anybody. But anyway, uh, it's hard if you're a Navy SEAL, right? To finish, but it's hard if you're human to finish. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory. It's his victory, not ours. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It matters. It matters. And he's using you. A couple years ago, our staff, we were in Texas, and we got to hear several pastors preach. One was a guy named Larry Osborne who preaches in north coast in north coast of San Diego where we lived for a few years and Larry Osborne talks about he's a USC fan as in the Trojans of Southern California and he gives this sermon illustration when he talks about uh, years ago in 2005 I believe was the season this game led to what some call the greatest college football game ever played USC Texas 2005 or 6 national championship Rose Bowl game and Larry, this pastor, Larry Osborne, is a USC fan. He talks about watching the game and how it just, it just, he went crazy because USC had to mount a comeback at Notre Dame in November. And they were behind. It looked like they were going to lose the game. And quarterback Matt Leinert and um, running back Reggie Bush mounted this drive. And there were some just crazy plays and maybe an illegal Reggie Bush push into the end zone. But USC won the game. And, and Larry Osborne talks about how he was going crazy, just heart beating and almost lost it. Obviously, it's an idol in his heart, football, right? 
And his team won the game. And he talks about going back and watching that game several times. And how he watches the game so differently when he knows the outcome. And you and I, we have victory in Christ. Well, I feel defeated, Pastor. You have victory in Christ. Things aren't going my way. I don't see a lot of fruit. I'm comparing myself on social media with other people and I'm not doing as well as they're doing. You have the victory in Christ. I'm tired. I feel like a running back just taking blow after blow after blow. They don't have long careers in the NFL. This isn't going to last long. I'm just fatigued. I'm worn out. You have the victory in Christ. And if you know that you have victory in Christ, you will see things so much differently. Can I tell you that has helped me hang on and it has helped me in many ways thrive. Don't quit. You've been given the victory. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's not in vain. The last thing I think Paul would want on his tombstone. Number five, I gave more than I took. Very emotional scene. Very tender goodbye, which I love because I hate this notion that we've adopted in America because of our busyness that the church is an institution and it's cold and it's commerce and it's corporate. And you see here this great theologian, somebody once said, just because it's theological doesn't mean it's theoretical. And there is emotion and there are relationships. Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, I didn't just share the gospel, but I shared with you my own life. And when you share life with someone, and when you go deep with somebody, and I pray it happens here, there's emotion. Every year, because we have so many young people, we have so many young people moving on as they're getting educated and finding their place of gainful employment, they love us and then they leave us, and they'll come up and say, sometimes through tears, thank you. Thank you for being our church. Thank you for creating a place. And honestly, that stuff keeps me going. I hate losing people. It never gets easy. But I'm proud to have people for a season. And I'd love to see our church growing and being knitted together more and more. And you'll see this great emotion. Men, I I say it every so often, and wives, thank me for it. But fellas, it's a good thing. To express yourself. Practice. Put your heart out there. When it hurts, let somebody know. Let them know. And here we see Paul in this tender goodbye. I mean, they follow him to the ship. I'll never remember. My family's out of town, so I can tell this story without their approval, but nobody tell them, okay? But when we moved, we, we, we started the church. God's been so good to us six years ago next month. But it took us about a year to sell our home in the reservoir. When the house sold, there's that time when you move. We, we live just across the street here, less than a mile. And when we moved, our youngest son, 13 at the time, he was, what, eight? Not quite eight. And he was, man, he was like the dude in the neighborhood. And he had some really close friends. And when you're eight years old and you're a little boy and you got other little boys your age in the neighborhood, I mean, that's, that's the good stuff, right? That's the really good stuff. And Wesley was just, man, he had his bros. And they knew we were moving. We had talked about it, and we had gotten sad. But Susan, when I'm like, babe, you go. I'm, I'll stay here. I'll unpack some of the box. You go. 
And she went out to get the last little nitpicking stuff. And Wesley was still there. And she had to extract him out of the home of our neighbor. It was a little cul-de-sac. And these boys just loved each other. Three in particular were the three little amigos. And Susan tells me that as Wesley got in the car as a little eight-year-old. And she drives toward Fondren. That the little boys chased the car out of the neighborhood crying. Ugh. Like you talking about a, a deep level of dad guilt. You know, like I just, I take it, I can just hop in my truck and drive all around the metro area like all of our adults, right? But here we took him out of his neighborhood and created a new world for him. But there was this really emotional departure. Why? Because they loved well. Because they had made memories and had fun. It was what they knew. And that's what a church ought to be about. At the risk of ad nauseum, I want to say it again. If you've been here this summer or listened to the series online, that the church in God's eyes, in, in the book of Acts, it's not a place to attend or an event to sit through. It is a people to be a part of. And you see that in Paul's life. And he says it's better to give than it is to receive. There are some things that deaden your life and mine. They are, uh, as our team makes their way up, they are spiritual diseases, I believe. The first is, is boredom. Boredom is this view of the world that is static and is fixed. And it's sort of like, eh, I'm not needed. I don't need to contribute. It, it, it is what it is. And it's boredom. And then there's cynicism. And cynicism, it's, it's a wound. Cynicism, maybe it comes from being booed off the stage or being broken up with or failing. But cynicism is, it's this wound where you've been hurt, but a cynic, a cynical person attacks other people. A cynical person is very critical. A cynical person holds things at a distance. Because when it's out there, when you hold it at a distance and you make fun of it, it can't hurt you. Oh, it sounds witty and wise. Those cynical people, they're witty and wise. They sound funny and intelligent, but they're wounded. So they crack and they cut and they comment constantly. Beyond boredom and cynicism, there's despair. And while boredom is in many ways fairly subtle, and cynicism can seem funny and intelligent, but it's, it's woundedness. Despair is this deep thud in your heart that says nothing matters. And these spiritual diseases trip us up, debilitate and paralyze us, and leave us on the sidelines and make us think that my gifts and my life and my creativity and my financial generosity and my sacrifice don't matter and won't make a difference. Last week, the staff were blessed with a visit by a young lady that some of you are going to know. I think we'll have her picture. Her, her name is Katie Etheridge. She too doesn't know we're talking about her today. She wrote me recently, and she said, she wrote us, I shouldn't take credit. Dear Fondren Church staff, I moved to Jackson four years ago to attend nursing school at UMMC. And Fondren Church has been a vital part of my life ever since. I cannot begin to tell you 
how much this congregation has impacted my life and pointed me to dive deeper in my relationship with Christ. This church has been the encouragement and community I needed. And now, excuse me, and now that I'm moving away, I wanted to share with your staff and all of you what it's meant to me for you seeking Jesus first and loving his children so well. Keep it up. Here's a young lady who's saying, I don't want to be so comfortable. I don't want my life to be about my safety and security. My life is not my own. And look at this contrast between black and white. Look at that skin difference. But think of the cultural difference as well. And she went for several months and came back to raise funds. Who wants to do that, huh? And she's back serving in Haiti in truly one of the most impoverished regions of the country. And I want to say to you as a team, I think this is right, Nick, a team of our people are literally flying back right now, maybe touching down at Jackson International Airport from Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Your giving here matters. A few of us carry the weight when it comes to giving financially. And we are blessed. I share with you some of the story. but We are so blessed financially. I don't preach this out of scarcity, but I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to think about how you could join us. There's a group of about 200 people who tithe, who give sacrificially to this church, but many, many, many more who do not. You know, nobody's getting rich around here. In an age of scandal and mismanagement, can I tell you, you can look at our books. We want to lead with integrity, transparency, and generosity. And what we challenge everyone to do is Scripture commands. We take that and we double it as a church. For some of you, it could be a step to trust God. Susan and I, when we got married, we said, hey, it's better to live on 90% with God's blessing than 100% doing it our own way. Because I want to preach the whole counsel of God and because money is tripping a lot of us up, I want to say to you, I hope you learn that it is better to give than it is to receive. And in the book of Acts, this early church, they moved away from consumerism and acquisition and they moved toward generosity to the point that they were like, Lord, bring heaven to earth. One day there's not going to be need. One day there's not going to be suffering and injustice and abject poverty. One day there's not. And we pray to a heavenly father and we say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we want to be a little heaven on earth. And folks, that's not going to happen. We're not going to be able to go fight human trafficking and create a team that can love on our church and knit us together and make a difference in places without generous people. I hope and pray that you would, if you're married, you would talk to your spouse about moving toward becoming a steady giver. It is better to give than it is to receive. So summation, five things and I'll shut up. My life is not my own. I learned the value of trouble. I told you the truth. 
I finished strong. And I gave more. I gave more than I took. Let's pray.